open your Bibles to Judges chapter 13. Judges chapter 13, there we go. Uh, that's where we'll be today. Uh, we're continuing our study of through the book of Judges, and uh, in this uh, story today, we come to Samson, one of the most interesting stories. When I say the word Samson, what do you think of? About 45 years ago, uh, some social psychologists came up with these word association games to identify subconscious thought patterns. So they would say things like heart, and if you said passion, that would reveal one thing, but if you said broken, that would reveal something else. So if, if I said the word owl, and you thought Pacino or Gore or Roker, you know, depending on how you entertain yourself, that would be one thing. But if I said Al and you said Kahal, well, that might mean you have a problem, okay? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to, to turn to your neighbor and I want you to say the first thing that comes to mind when I say night. Okay, I heard, I heard day, I heard sleep. Okay, same thing. What comes to mind when I say the word church? What comes to mind when I say vacation? Okay, I heard rest, I heard beach. Okay, again, what comes to mind when I say Samson? Okay, I heard strong, I heard long hair, I heard Delilah. But you know, there's a question when it comes to Samson, whether he was well-built at all. Do you know that? He wasn't supposed to be this picture of the ultimate male. He's the picture of what God can do through the power of his Holy Spirit. And so I hate to burst your bubble, but he probably didn't look jacked. He probably didn't look like the rock. Samson's story comes towards the end of the book of Judges. In fact, he's the last judge specifically talked about. And we get a lot more material on him than we do all the other judges. There's three whole chapters worth. And that's because Samson's life summarizes the message of Judges, and it points us beyond Judges. God is going to give us the picture of how he saves his people. By this point in Judges, we can conclude that Israel's cycle of disobedience is permanent. By now, this cycle has become pretty familiar. It begins with fellowship, where they follow God, and then that leads to idolatry, where their heart is drawn away and they worship other idols. That leads to enslavement, where God punishes them by allowing them to be enslaved by these idols. That leads to repentance, in their suffering, they cry out to God and they repent. And that leads to deliverance, where God raises up a judge to save them. And they go along okay for a while until they forget what they've learned and that cycle starts over. It's the cycle of judges. Now at first, at the beginning of our, our study of this, we, we kind of hope that they would snap out of this sinful cycle. But by now, we have seen this again and again and again, and we're ready to throw our hands up in despair and give up all hope on Israel when suddenly the narrative structure of Judges changes and we get this really in-depth story loaded, of symbol, loaded with symbolism. So here we go, Judges chapter 13, verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. 
So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. 40 is the number of judgment and completion. This is the ultimate judgment on sin. The Philistines were bad people. I mean, really bad. First, they were extremely sophisticated. Their weaponry and architecture and culture were far beyond other civilizations at the time. They were the first ones to work with iron and make iron weapons. They were the first one to employ battle formations and war. Their art, their pottery, and architecture were all advanced. They were building multi-story buildings and, and, and bridges at a time when Israel was just out in the fields tending their sheep. Second, they were really depraved. They had built their entire civilization on piracy and conquest. In every way, they were a militarized society. Their parties were epic for their debauchery. They pioneered this thing called the Mizteh. It was a word that literally means a week-long drinking feast. You thought IU students invented that? No, it was the Philistines. They were also big into pork. They filled Israel's countryside with pigs, which were unclean for Jews. They were unspeakably cruel. When they would capture a town, they would mutilate and they would re remove the genitals of the men. Then they would torture them. Following that, they would impale them. Buccaneering, beer, bacon, and barbarianism. This was the Philistines. They represent the enemies of God at their strongest. Numerically, culturally, economically, and militarily, they are superior to Israel. Verse 2, a certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. I want to give you five observations that are going to teach us about our salvation from these two verses alone. First, I want you to look in your Bibles between verses 1 and 2. And I want to see if you can notice what's missing there. There's something missing between verses 1 and 2. You know what it is? There's no cry of repentance. So if these people are going to be saved, it's not going to be because God waits on them to seek him. It's going to be because he must seek them first. Now check this out. This is the first time that a judge is promised before birth. You see, with every other judge, God raised someone up who was already alive. It's as if God is saying to them that the Savior they need is, is not someone from among them that he's just going to make stronger. He's going to have to start over from scratch. Third, this promise is given to a woman who is barren. She's nearing old age and is without kids. Barrenness in those days was the ultimate devastation for a woman. Now, it's difficult in our day too, but back then, all of their hope for their future was bound up with their kids. The society was agrarian, which meant that the more sons that you had, the more workers you had for the farm, which meant more money that you could generate for your family. This is also a time, remember, before Social Security, before 401Ks, and so the more children that you had, the more likely you'd be taken care of in old age. And for the nation itself, economic and military health was completely dependent on how many children were born. 
So women who had lots of babies were considered heroes, but women who couldn't bear children were seen as useless. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says, Barrenness in ancient texts symbolized hopelessness. For without children, there was no foreseeable future for yourself, for your family, or for your people. Of course, today, most people don't think this way. We put more hope for the future from where we graduated from or what kind of career we have, our occupation. But from this woman's vantage point, she has no security, she has no prospects, she has no hope. Here's the fourth detail. We are never given her name. Now this is odd because this story is, is so full of, of other minute details. We know the father's name is Manoah, but Samson's mother is only referred to as the woman. You see, the author is intentionally painting her as obscure. And in just a minute, we're going to get some clues that shows that she is not a God-seeking woman. Here's the lesson about salvation, and it's so important. God brings his salvation to a people who are not crying out in repentance, who have no talents or gifts or righteousness to distinguish them from others. They are a people with no hope and no prospects in themselves. Here's a way to say that. God doesn't love the lovely. He makes lovely those he loves. He doesn't save the strong. He makes strong those he saves. He doesn't choose the righteous. He makes righteous those he chooses. Which means, church, that no matter who you are, no matter what circumstance you find yourself in in life, no matter what mistakes you have made, no matter what weaknesses you feel, there is hope for you. But listen, that hope is not going to be found in you simply turning over a new leaf. It's not going to be found, to, to use the metaphor, by getting pregnant in your barrenness out of your own strength. It will be found by you receiving God's gift of grace, his choice of you. It's one of the sweetest, most humbling truths to me, that God sets his affection on me just because. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, this is the first time that God clearly explains this to Israel. It says, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people's, for you were the fewest of all people's. He's saying you weren't the strongest, you weren't the most sophisticated, you weren't the most moral, but verse 8, it was because the Lord loved you. Earlier this week, I was putting my youngest son to bed. I said, son, you know that I love you, right? He said, yeah. I said, do you know why that I love you? He was laying in his bed. He kind of looked up at the ceiling. He goes, because I'm a good boy? I said, no. He said, I don't love you because you're a good boy. It doesn't matter if you're a good boy or a bad boy. I'm going to love you. I said, son, I love you because I'm your dad. Parents, you don't love your kids because they're smart, even though they're smart. You don't love your kids because they're beautiful, even though they're beautiful. See, love doesn't need a reason. You love them because they're your son. You love them because they're your daughter. Love doesn't need a reason. Love is the reason. And I'll tell you what's so comforting to me. If God didn't choose me when I was righteous, that means he's not going to leave me when I'm suffering. Here's what I can tell you. After 23 years of following Jesus, I have learned that I am not holding on to him nearly as tightly as he's holding on to me. 
And I know that because his grip on me is tighter than my grip on him, I have hope for the future. I know that he is with me. Verse four, now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. Now real quick, this is how we know that this woman was not a righteous woman. She shouldn't have to be told to start avoiding these unclean things. She should have already been doing that. Verse five, you will become pregnant and have a son whose head is to never be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Now let's talk about the Nazarite vow. Okay, this was really intense. It was like a really intense fast. There were three provisions. First, you could not cut your hair during the vow. Second, you couldn't drink anything from the vine, whether fermented or not. So this meant no Cabernet, no Miller Lights, even Welch's unfermented grape juice was off limits, which basically was all they had in that day. Without that, it was milk or water, and that was it. Three, you could not touch any dead bodies of any kind. When I was in college, the way a professor helped us to understand the Nazarite vow was this way. No bick, no booze, no body. No bick, no, no cutting your hair. No booze, no alcohol, no body. Couldn't be around a dead body. Usually people would commit to this vow for only a short period of time because it was so intense. But Samson does this from birth. From the time he's born, he never cuts his hair which means that, that he would have looked like a, a mix between you know, Tom Hanks and Castaway meets Duck Dynasty meets ZZ Top. Like that's what, that's, picture that, okay? But this vow is a symbol of how one day God's Savior would be set apart, holy and sinless. To summarize the, the next several verses, the, the woman goes to Manoah and tells her that the angel of the Lord appeared to her and this is, this is what all is going to happen. And, and Manoah thinks that she's been taking a little bit of the strong drink and says, no, 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 tell God to have the angel come back again. And so the angel comes back again and the first thing Manoah does in verse 15 is he says to the angel of the Lord, we would like you to stay until we prepare a young goat for you. But the angel of the Lord won't do it because in that culture, Breaking bread with someone was a sign of peace, and there was no peace between God and Israel. So then Manoah begins to, to pepper the angel with questions. And verse 12, Manoah asked, when your words are fulfilled, what is to be the rule that governs the boy's life and work? And then verse 17, what is your name so that we may honor you when your word comes true? What does Manoah want? He wants details. And I don't have time to, to go into this, but we're the same way. We want explanations. We want to know how everything's happening, but God gives us revelation. Verse 19, Manoah took a young goat together with the grain offering and sacrificed it on a rock to the Lord. And the Lord did an amazing thing while Manoah and his wife watched. So instead of dinner, they offer a sacrifice Verse 20, as the flame blazed up from the altar toward heaven, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame. Seeing this, Manoah and his wife fell with their faces to the ground. We are doomed to die, he said. We have seen God. But his wife answered, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and grain offering from our hands, nor shown us all these things, or now told us this. 
Now, since I've kind of trashed Samson's mom up to this point, let me point out something amazing about her. She responds in a way that puts her among the greatest women of faith in the Bible. She simply says, I trust him. He's obviously good, and I am ready to obey all that he has said. This response was better than Sarah, the wife of Abraham, who laughed when God told her that she would have a child in her barrenness. Her response is better than Elizabeth, the the priest Zechariah's wife, who doubted the angel when he told her that she would have a baby in her old age. There's only one or two other women in Scripture who responded with that same kind of faith, and one of them is Mary, who when she was told about her impossible birth, she said, let it be unto me according to your word. I believe what you have promised. Do all that you have said. There is only one response that pleases God. I believe what you have promised, and I will do whatever you say. See, this woman was not really impressive in any way. She's obscure. She's lived a rough life. But here, she just says, yes, Lord. Yes. That's all he's looking for. Have you said that? Yes, Lord. The great substitute for that response is religion. Religion is built on negotiation. I'll give you this, and and you do this for me. But Jesus doesn't negotiate. He owns it all, including you. And you can only be one of two postures with him. Faith and surrender or rebellion. You see, Jesus doesn't come to try to influence bad people to become better people. In the words of C.S. Lewis, he comes to rebels and he demands that they lay down their arms. He doesn't come to influence and help. He comes to take over. I'm sure you've, you've seen or you're familiar with the, the bumper sticker that says, Jesus is my co-pilot. I'll just say, that is terrible theology, Okay. If, if you happen to have that bumper sticker, please, I'm begging you, go remove it. You, you know why? Because if God is your co-pilot, somebody's in the wrong seat. When, when God comes, he says, your life, your car, that's my car. You stole it. Get out. And you get in the back seat and you say, God, you're driving. Where are we going? You lead the way. Who would have known all these years later that Carrie Underwood got it right? Jesus, take the wheel is the right response to Jesus. See, this relationship, lordship, it's the kind of relationship where you either are or you aren't. It's like faithfulness in marriage. Fellas, if you were 96% faithful to your wife, do you think she'd be okay with that? Do you think that would fly? No, you're either faithful or you're not. And by the way, you don't have anything to negotiate with anyways. We are barren, unrighteous, and worthy of condemnation. Religion is the great counterfeit to true faith and surrender. And busyness in religion keeps a lot of people deceived into thinking they're right with God when they aren't. They say, well, I I go to church a lot and I give a little, I try not to break too many of the commandments. Listen, you have either said to Jesus, I believe all that you have said, 
And I believe that you have done everything necessary to save me and accept me, and I'm ready to follow you with my whole life, or you haven't. Religion negotiates. Faith surrenders. Which category are you in? Have you said absolutely, unconditionally, yes, Lord, I receive, and I will follow? Verse 24, the woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew, and the Lord blessed him. Now, right here, we already see an indication that Samson is in trouble because Samson's name, Samson, is a tribute to the sun god. And this is an indication that his entire life will be marked by compromise. I want to quickly give you four problems that are going to plague Samson's life that are a precursor for where we're going in the next couple of messages. Number one is compromise. He's going to break all three provisions in the Nazarite vow. Remember, no bick, no booze, no body. In chapter 14, Samson falls in love with a Philistine girl. Now, obviously, that's a problem in itself because she doesn't even share his faith. And then he throws himself a mista. Remember a mista? A week-long beer keg fest? Well, a few days before this party, a lion attacks him. And I love this, this phrase, Judges 14, 6. It says, he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn apart a young goat. Okay, I've got so many questions here. First, was this common? Was, was this something that, that people did? They describe it like it's, it's common parlance, but evidently a few days later, he sees the carcass of the lion, and he notices that there's a beehive in the abdomen. Again, I've got questions. Was the beehive already in the abdomen? Did it get there after he killed it? It's like the chicken or the egg, which came first? I don't know. But he scoops up some honey, and he eats it. So there he's already violating the command not to touch a dead body. And of course, he ends up cutting his hair, which leads to his downfall. Samson is a picture of someone who compromises whenever it's convenient. Second, he's impulsive. Throughout his life, he is controlled by his passions. He gets hungry for honey, so he eats it. He wants a woman, so he takes her. Doesn't matter if she's a Philistine or a prostitute or whatever. When Samson tells his parents that he wants to marry a Philistine and they object, he simply says, get her for me because she pleases me or she is right in my eyes. He gets mad, he kills people. Every one of Samson's great feats of strength, except for his very last, came as a result of being personally insulted or angered. We get this image of a guy on roid rage, completely out of control. Let me give you one quick illustration of this. After Samson kills the lion and eats the honey out of its belly on the way to the, you know, the bachelor keg party, he has this idea. He tells 30 Philistine guys at the party, I'm going to tell you a riddle, and we'll make it interesting. If you can figure out the riddle in seven days, then I will give each one of you a set of clothes. But if you can't figure it out in seven days, then you all have to give me a set of clothes. Well, they try to figure it out, and they can't. And so they go to his bride-to-be, and they say, tell us, you have to find out what, what the answer to this riddle is, and then you have to tell us, and if you don't, we're going to burn down your father's house. And so she goes to Samson, and she starts crying. She says, Samson, you don't love me. If you loved me, you'd tell me. Our counselor said that we shouldn't keep secrets from each other, and 
and you're keeping secrets, and, and this isn't going to be good for our marriage, so please, please tell me. And in verse 17, it says that she cried the whole seven days of the feast. Talk about a miserable bachelor party. So on the seventh day, he finally told her because she continued to press him. She, in turn, explained the riddle to her people. Before sunset on the seventh day, the men of the town said to him, Samson, what is sweeter than honey, and what is stronger than a lion? And then verse 18 ends with another just great verse. Samson's response to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. Men, there are two obvious lessons there for you. Number one, don't let anyone plow with your wife. Number two, don't call your wife a heifer, okay? Free advice, okay? Free advice, take it. Well, Samson gets ticked off, and so he goes out and he kills 30 other Philistines. He takes the clothes off of them and says, here's your clothes, all torn up and bloody. And this is his whole life. And it would be kind of funny if it wasn't so doggone tragic. He is a man who is impulsive. Honestly, I was thinking about that this week, about how much Samson was willing to risk just to have an impulse satisfied. And I thought, who would do that? Who would risk being the strongest man alive for a little taste of honey? And then I realized, guys do it every day. I'm tempted to do it. We trade God and his promises for the slightest bit of sweetness or pleasure. It's the guys who will throw away their marriage for a taste of pornography. I know of college guys who, who, who will not consider the lordship of, of Jesus because they don't want to give up their, their sexual freedom in college. And I just think, you're willing to trade God, you're willing to trade eternity for the smallest taste of honey. Third, entitlement. I, I won't go into this one, but his attitude is, I deserve this honey. I am awesome. I'm going to take it. Fourth is pride. Everything in Samson's life is about him. Just read through these chapters and see how many times Samson uses the word I. He leverages his God-given strength mainly for him, not for God. Eventually, he allows his hair to be cut because he has convinced himself that he is the source of his own strength, not God. And so let me say to the guys in here, these four things are the greatest threats to what God wants to do in your life. When you compromise, when you become impulsive, when you live with a sense of entitlement and when you walk in pride, the enemy already has a hold on you. But that's next week's sermon. Today, I want to get back to this message. At the end of chapter 13, what I want you to see is that from the beginning, Samson is pointing forward beyond judges. Samson is the last judge in this book. He's the last great hope for Israel. And so we wait to see how he will rescue and how he will rule God's people in obedience. And in almost every way, we are left disappointed. But he points us forward to another. See, Jesus will complete what Samson begins. Judges 13.5 says that, that Samson led the way. Some translations say that, that he begins, but Jesus will complete it. See, Jesus' birth and Samson's birth 
have remarkable similarities. They are both promised before birth. Remember, Samson is the only judge who comes this way. All the other judges God chose after they were alive. Samson is giving us a picture of how the real Savior would come one day. The births of Samson and Jesus were both miraculous. Samson's mom was barren. Mary was a virgin. There's one big difference, though. The birth of Samson brought joy and honor in the midst of shame. But the birth of Jesus brought disgrace. Mary and Joseph became embarrassed outcasts because of Jesus' birth because it looked like that they had had him out of wedlock. But Samson's birth brought celebration and honor. Jesus was born into poverty and shame. Why this distinction? Because the real Savior would not save us simply through power, turning our sorrow to joy. The real Savior would have to enter into our shame and take it on and die for it. Samson was a Nazarite, a respected religious man. Jesus was a Nazarene, a despised cultural outcast. One more thing. With Samson and Jesus, we are told a lot about their births, but almost nothing about their childhoods. I hope that you can see that Samson's story is being told in a way that gives us a preview of Jesus' story. Jesus is the true and better Samson. He will succeed at every place that Samson fails. Like Samson, Jesus' strength would reside in not how he was built, not in his personal charisma, not in his beauty, but in the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. But unlike Jesus, or unlike Samson, Jesus never once compromised. He would uphold every facet of God's law and was without sin. Instead of being controlled by his impulses, Jesus would be controlled by God's will. After fasting for 40 days in the wilderness, he would reject Satan's attempts to tempt him with bread by saying, I don't live by bread alone, I live by God's word. Jesus didn't do things because it pleased himself, but because it pleased God. In Gethsemane, Jesus said, God, please take this cup away from me, but not what I will, but your will be done. And though Jesus was entitled to the throne, he would take the role of a servant and he would submit to the humiliation of the cross. We stand in awe at the strength of Samson, but I stand amazed at the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus is the real Samson, and knowing his glorious life will enable you to live like Samson should have lived. You see, the truth is God wants to use you powerfully like he did Samson in the lives of other people. But you can destroy and you can disqualify yourself and you often, oftentimes will. It's the irony of Samson. He's strong on the outside, weak on the inside. But when you see and you believe what Jesus did for you, you will receive the moral strength to live the way that Samson couldn't live. When you see that Jesus was the real Samson who gave up his life to save you, that he was the strong who became weak for you. That though he was rich, he became poor. He was the righteous who became our sin. Instead of saying, I want it, you will have the strength to say, I want God, and I want to do his will. Instead of saying, I deserve it, 
you will confess, I deserve death. And I will gladly submit in gratefulness to his command. Instead of saying, my strengths and my abilities are all about me, you will say, oh Jesus, it is all about you. It is all for you. It is all through you. It is all from you. Instead of saying, I can handle it, you'll say, I can't handle. I can't handle anything without God, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I told you several weeks ago that the goal in every sermon is worship. I don't want you just to come in here and learn a lot of new information about Samson as if that's going to help you. I don't want to just give you some action steps of here's how you can be like Samson. You can't and you shouldn't. See, the goal of a lecture is to leave you with a page full of notes. The goal of a motivational speech is is to leave you with action steps. But the goal of a sermon is that you would leave worshiping. There ought to be a time in every sermon where the pen goes down and the eyes go up and you worship God for who he is. Where you stop saying, oh God, look at how much I have to do for you. And you begin to say, oh my Lord, look at how much you have done for me.